Chapter Thirteen of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Some new acquaintances are introduced to the intelligent reader, connected with whom various pleasant matters are related appertaining to this history. Where's Oliver? said the Jew, rising with a menacing look. Where's the boy? The young thieves eyed their preceptor as if they were alarmed at his violence, and looked uneasily at each other, but they made no reply. "'What's become of the boy?' said the Jew, seizing the dodger tightly by the collar, and threatening him with horrid imprecations. "'Speak out, or I'll throttle you!' Mr. Fagin looked so very much in earnest that Charlie Bates, who deemed it prudent in all cases to be on the safe side, and who conceived it by no means improbable that it might be his turn to be throttled second, dropped upon his knees and raised a loud, well-sustained and continuous roar, something between a mad bull and a speaking-trumpet. "'Will you speak?' thundered the Jew, shaking the dodger so much that his keeping in the big coat at all seemed perfectly miraculous. "'Why, the traps have got him, and that's all about it,' said the dodger sullenly. "'Come, let go of me, will you?' and swinging himself at one jerk clean out of the big coat which he left in the Jew's hands, the dodger snatched up the toasting-fork and made a pass at the merry old gentleman's waistcoat, which, if it had taken effect, would have let a little more merriment out than could have been easily replaced. The Jew stepped back in this emergency with more agility than could have been anticipated in a man of his apparent decrepitude, and seizing up the pot prepared to hurl it at his assailant's head. But Charlie Bates at this moment, calling his attention by a perfectly terrific howl, he suddenly altered its destination, and flung it full at that young gentleman. "'Why, what the blazes is in the wind now?' growled a deep voice. "'Who pitched that ear at me? It's well as the beer and not the pot as hit me, or I'd have set with somebody. I might have knowed as nobody but an infernal rich plundering, thundering old Jew could afford to throw away any drink but water.' and not that unless he'd done the river company every quarter what's it all about fagin damn me if my neck handkerchief ain't lined with beer come in you sneakin' warmint what are you stoppin' outside for as if you was ashamed of your master come in the man who growled out these words was a stoutly built fellow of about five-and-thirty in a black velveteen coat very soiled drab breeches lace-up half-boots and grey cotton stockings which enclosed a bulky pair of legs with large swelling calves the kind of legs which in such costume always look in an unfinished and incomplete state without a set of fetters to garnish them he had a brown hat on his head and a dirty belcher handkerchief round his neck with the long frayed ends of which he smeared the beer from his face as he spoke he disclosed when he had done so a broad heavy countenance with a beard of three days growth and two scowling eyes, one of which displayed various particular symptoms, of having been recently damaged by a blow. "'Come in, dear here,' growled this engaging ruffian. A white shaggy dog with his face scratched and torn in twenty different places skulked into the room. "'Why didn't you come in afore?' said the man. "'You're getting too proud to owe me afore company, are you? Lie down!' This command was accompanied with a kick which sent the animal to the other end of the room. He appeared well used to it, however, for he coiled himself up in a corner very quietly, without uttering a sound, and winking his very ill-looking eyes twenty times a minute, appeared to occupy himself in taking a survey of the apartment. "'What are you up to? Ill-treating the boys, you covetous, avaricious, insatiable old fence,' said the man, seating himself deliberately. 
I wonder they don't murder you. I would if I was them. If I'd been your apprentice, I'd have done it long ago. And now I couldn't have sold you afterwards for your fit for nothing but keeping as a curiosity of ugliness in a glass bottle. And I suppose they don't blow glass bottles large enough. Hush, hush, Mr. Sykes, said the Jew, trembling. Don't speak so loud. None of your mistering, replied the ruffian. You always mean mischief when you come to that. You know my name. Out with it. I shan't disgrace it when the time comes. Well, well then, Bill Sykes, said the Jew with abject humility. You seem out of humour, Bill. Perhaps I am, replied Sykes. I should think you was rather out of sorts, too, unless you mean as little arm when you throw pewter pots about, as you do when you blab and— Are you mad? said the Jew, catching the man by the sleeve and pointing towards the boys. Mr. Sykes contented himself with tying an imaginary knot under his left ear, and jerking his head over on the right shoulder, a piece of dumb show which the Jew appeared to understand perfectly. He then, in cant terms with which his whole conversation was plentifully besprinkled, but which would be quite unintelligible if they were recorded here, demanded a glass of liquor. "'Now mind you don't poison it,' said Mr. Sykes, laying his hat upon the table. This was said in jest, but if the speaker could have seen the evil leer with which the Jew bit his pale lip as he turned round to the cupboard, he might have thought the caution not wholly unnecessary, or the wish, at all events, to improve upon the distiller's ingenuity not very far from the old gentleman's merry heart. After swallowing two or three glasses of spirits, Mr. Sykes condescended to take some notice of the young gentleman, which gracious act led to a conversation in which the cause and manner of Oliver's capture were circumstantially detailed, with such alterations and improvements on the truth as to the dodger appeared most advisable under the circumstances. "'I'm afraid,' said the Jew, "'that he may say something which will get us into trouble.' "'That's very likely,' returned Sykes, with a malicious grin. "'You're blowed upon, Fagin.' "'And I'm afraid, you see,' added the Jew, speaking as if he had not noticed the interruption, and regarding the other closely as he did so, "'I'm afraid that if the game was up with us, it might be up with a good many more, and that it would come out rather worse for you than it would for me, my dear.' The man started and turned round upon the Jew but the old gentleman's shoulders were shrugged up to his ears, and his eyes were vacantly staring on the opposite wall. There was a long pause. Every member of the respectable coterie appeared plunged in his own reflections, not excepting the dog, who, by a certain malicious licking of his lips, seemed to be meditating an attack upon the legs of the first gentleman or lady he might encounter in the streets when he went out. "'Somebody must find out what's been done at the office.' said Mr. Sykes, in a much lower tone than he had taken since he came in. The Jew nodded assent. "'If he has impeached and is committed, there's no fear till he comes out again,' said Mr. Sykes. "'And then he must be taken care on. You must get hold of him somehow.' Again the Jew nodded. The prudence of this line of action, indeed, was obvious. But unfortunately there was one very strong objection to its being adopted. This was that the Dodger and Charlie Bates and Fagan and Mr. William Sykes happened one and all to entertain a violent and deeply rooted antipathy to going near a police office, on any ground or pretext whatever. How long they might have sat and looked at each other in a state of uncertainty not the most pleasant of its kind, it is difficult to guess. It is not necessary to make any guesses on the subject, however, for the sudden entrance of the two young ladies whom Oliver had seen on a former occasion caused the conversation to flow afresh. "'The very thing,' said the Jew. Bet will go, won't you, my dear?' "'Where's?' inquired the young lady. 
"'Only just up to the office, my dear,' said the Jew coaxingly. It is due to the young lady to say that she did not positively affirm that she would not, but that she merely expressed an emphatic and earnest desire to be blessed if she would, a polite and delicate evasion of the request, which shows the young lady to have been possessed of that natural good breeding which cannot bear to inflict upon a fellow-creature the pain of a direct and pointed refusal. The Jew's countenance fell. He turned from this young lady, who was gaily, not to say gorgeously, attired, in a red gown, green boots, and yellow curl-papers, to the other female. "'Nancy, my dear,' said the Jew, in a soothing manner, "'what do you say?' "'That I won't do, so it's no use to try it on, Fagin,' replied Nancy. "'What do you mean by that?' said Mr. Sykes, looking up in a surly manner. "'What I say, Bill,' replied the lady, collectedly. "'Well, you're just the very person for it.' reasoned Mr. Sykes. Nobody about here knows anything of you. And as I don't want him to, neither, replied Nancy in the same composed manner, it's rather more no than yes with me, Bill. She'll go, Fagin, said Sykes. No, she won't, Fagin, said Nancy. Yes, she will, Fagin, said Sykes. And Mr. Sykes was right. By dint of alternate threats, promises, and bribes, the lady in question was ultimately prevailed upon to undertake the commission. She was not indeed withheld by the same considerations as her agreeable friend, for, having recently removed into the neighbourhood of Fieldane from the remote but genteel suburb of Ratcliffe, she was not under the same apprehension of being recognised by any of her numerous acquaintances. Accordingly, with a clean white apron tied over her gown and her curl-papers tucked up under a straw bonnet, both articles of dress being provided from the Jew's inexhaustible stock, Miss Nancy prepared to issue forth on her errand. "'Stop a minute, my dear,' said the Jew, producing a little covered basket. "'Carry that in one hand. It looks more respectable, my dear.' "'Give it a door-key to carry in t'other one, Fagin,' said Sykes. "'It looks real and genuine-like.' "'Yes, yes, my dear, so it does,' said the Jew, hanging a large street-door-key on the forefinger of the young lady's right hand. "'There, very good, very good indeed, my dear,' said the Jew, rubbing his hands. "'How, my brother, my poor, dear, sweet, innocent little brother!' exclaimed Nancy, bursting into tears, and wringing the little basket and the street-door key in an agony of distress. "'What's become of them? Where have they taken him to? Oh, do have pity and tell me what's been done with the dear boy, gentlemen. Do, gentlemen, if you please, gentlemen!' Having uttered those words in a most lamentable and heart-broken tone, to the immeasurable delight of our hearers, Miss Nancy paused, winked to the company, nodded smilingly round, and disappeared. "'Ah, she's a clever girl, my dears,' said the Jew, turning round to his young friends, and shaking his head gravely, as if in mute admonition to them to follow the bright example they had just beheld. "'She's an honour to her sex, said Mr. Sykes, filling his glass, and smiting the table with his enormous fist. "'Is her elf, and wishing there was all like her.' While these and many other encomiums were being passed on the accomplished Nancy, that young lady made the best of her way to the police office, whither, notwithstanding a little natural timidity, consequent upon walking through the streets alone and unprotected, she arrived in perfect safety shortly afterwards. Entering by the back way, she tapped softly with the key at one of the cell doors and listened. There was no sound within, so she coughed and listened again. Still there was no reply, so she spoke. "'Nolly, dear,' murmured Nancy in a gentle voice. "'Nolly!' There was nobody inside but a miserable, shoeless criminal, 
who had been taken up for playing the flute, and who, the offence against society having been clearly proved, had been very properly committed by Mr. Fang to the House of Correction for one month, with the appropriate and amusing remark that since he had so much breath to spare, it would be more wholesomely expended on the treadmill than in a musical instrument. He made no answer, being occupied mentally bewailing the loss of the flute, which had been confiscated for the use of the county. So Nancy passed on to the next cell and knocked there. "'Well?' cried a faint and feeble voice. "'Is there a little boy here?' inquired Nancy with a preliminary sob. "'No,' replied the voice. "'God forbid!' This was a vagrant of sixty-five who was going to prison for not playing the flute, or, in other words, for begging in the streets and doing nothing for his livelihood. In the next cell was another man, who was going to the same prison for hawking tin saucepans without licence, thereby doing something for his living in defiance of the stamp office. But as neither of these criminals answered to the name of Oliver or knew anything about him, Nancy made straight up to the bluff officer in the striped waistcoat, and with the most piteous wailings and lamentations rendered more piteous by a prompt and efficient use of the street-door key and the little basket, demanded her own dear brother. "'I haven't got him, my dear,' said the old man. "'Where is he?' screamed Nancy in a distracted manner. "'Why, the gentleman's got him,' replied the officer. "'What gentleman? Oh, gracious heavens, what gentleman?' exclaimed Nancy. In reply to this incoherent questioning, the old man informed the deeply affected sister that Oliver had been taken ill in the office, and discharged in consequence of a witness having proved the robbery to have been committed by another boy not in custody, and that the prosecutor had carried him away in an insensible condition to his own residence, of and concerning which all the informant knew was that it was somewhere in Pentonville, he having heard the word mentioned in the directions to the coachman. In a dreadful state of doubt and uncertainty the agonised young woman staggered to the gate, and then, exchanging her faltering walk for a swift run, returned by the most devious and complicated route she could think of, to the domicile of the Jew. Mr. Bill Sykes no sooner heard the account of the expedition delivered than he very hastily called up the white dog, and, putting on his hat, expeditiously departed, without devoting any time to the formality of wishing the company good morning. "'We must know where he is, my dears. He must be found,' said the Jew, greatly excited. "'Charlie, do nothing but skulk about till you bring home some news of him. Nancy, my dear, I must have him found. I trust to you, my dear, and to you and the awful dodger for everything. Stay, stay,' added the Jew, unlocking the drawer with a shaking hand. "'There's money, my dears. I shall shut up this shop to-night. You'll know where to find me. Don't stop here a minute, not an instant, my dears.' With these words he pushed them from the room, and carefully double-locking and barring the door behind them, drew from its place of concealment the box which he had unintentionally disclosed to Oliver. Then he hastily proceeded to dispose of the watches and jewellery beneath his clothing. A rap at the door startled him in his occupation. "'Who's there?' he cried in a shrill tone. "'Me,' replied the voice of the dodger through the keyhole. "'What now?' cried the Jew impatiently. "'Is you to be kidnapped to the other ken, Nancy says?' inquired the Dodger. "'Yes,' replied the Jew, "'wherever she lays hands on him. Find him, find him out, that's all. I shall know what to do next. Never fear.' The boy murmured a reply of intelligence and hurried downstairs after his companions. "'He is not Pete so far,' said the Jew as he pursued his occupation. "'If he means to blab us among his new friends, we may stop his mouth yet.' 
End of chapter 13